Our minds are so powerful that what we focus on reverberates through every aspect of our lives. So why not see what happens when we put our attention on all the good things people are doing? Join me for the good with Teresa G as we start a ripple effect by focusing on all the greatness in the world. Carlin Shaw is an inspirational storyteller, writer, intuitive connector, and the founder of Strangers to Friends. She empowers people to see setbacks as stepping stones and assists people to let go of limiting labels while using fear as fuel. Interesting story for you guys is I literally just saw a picture of Carlin and was like, wow, that girl has some awesome energy. Who is she? I looked her up and was blown away with her story, and that is how she came to be here today. Hi, Carlin. Hello, my dear. I am super excited you're here after all the (laughs) stuff we've gone through, you guys. You know, as I always say, everyone and everything shows up right on time, so we are all good. It is all good. And everyone, all my listeners, I, I just actually unhooked my microphone because it seems to not be working. So I'm sorry if I don't sound as clear and crisp as usual, but we've had some major technology things going on, uh, trying to do this interview. And I'm just like, we're just going to do it without the microphone. We're going to do it. It's probably going to be perfect with all the imperfections. So let's start with your roots. How was your childhood? Oh, my childhood. Well, I was born in Boston and my family moved to Greenville, South Carolina when I was a kid. So I was always a little different than everyone else, um, simply because I was considered a Yankee, even though I'd only (laughs) lived in Boston for eight months of my life. And I'm Jewish, and so I was a little different to the other kids as well, because I don't know if you're familiar, but the South is a little, it was like the Baptist Bible Belt. So I embraced my differences. I was the girl, I was the kid in you know, fifth grade that would go around to the first grade classrooms and want to teach the story of Hanukkah. Mm. And I was the kid who never really had a click, but was known as being friendly um, with everybody. So I've just always been somebody that naturally just wanted to make other people happy. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time was a little apprehensive about letting people get to know me too well. So as a kid, I can look back and see where I did a good job at hiding in a way. You know, when I think about my journey, it took me a really long time to get confident in speaking my truth and owning my voice. And especially as a kid, I really struggled with body image and I struggled with food becoming my vice And um, it led to an eating disorder and it really led to this uh, trying to control things in my life when I felt like life outside me was out of control. And it's not like my life was bad. It was just this internal struggle that I had as a kid of where do I belong Mm -hmm. and how do I fit in, even though I was friends with everybody and, you know, from the outside, my life looked great, but I really did have this internal struggle of knowing I was different and, and having awareness of some gifts that I had that I didn't recognize in others. And, um, and just the journey of who am I as a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I can understand. I can relate. Uh, so did you, do you think a particular experience in your early childhood created the MS you were diagnosed with at age 19? 
Well, it's interesting because over the years, absolutely, I'm able to reflect. At the time, I had I had no idea. So it, when I was 19, it was 1997. There was no Google. Um, there was no awareness that emotions or the way we treat ourselves, our thoughts, et cetera, could play a role in our health. Um, nor was there conversation about guts, our gut being the, the, you know, they say the gut is is a brain now, right? Mm-hmm. So when I think back now on who I was age like eight to 18, absolutely it played a role in where my MS manifested. I unfortunately hated who I was when I looked in the mirror. I didn't like, I would, I'd pinch my skin and, and like want things to change. Like I didn't like myself, which translates into, I didn't love myself. And now there's so much evidence and there's just a knowing that, you know, if we have negative thoughts on ourselves, then we're creating a toxicity within our body. And that is stress and stress translates into autoimmune. In addition to that, with my eating disorder, I was absolutely affecting my gut. You know, I was binging and I was purging. And that right there is again, stress on the body. And when you're living in this constant fight or flight mode within yourself, then so oftentimes your immune system is going to just hit this space of, I can't take this anymore. Listen to me, be nice to me. Right. And at age 19, even though I was really young, I had already been living through years of just not being nice to myself. And I think this is how my body responded. Wow. That's very in depth. And so do you look at your body now and do you love it? Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been a journey. Um, it took, it was 12 years into my MS journey. Well, a little backstory is the year that I was diagnosed with MS, both of my best friends were killed in separate car accidents. So one month after my diagnosis, my friend Meredith died and Margaret told me about it. And nine months later, Margaret died. So, Oh my gosh. Right. So MS in itself back in the late 90s was considered to, to many a death sentence because there was just no one really knew much about it. And especially people my age weren't being diagnosed. But my perspective was really different on how to identify with the MS because to me, it wasn't a death sentence, you know? Mm -hmm. So this this journey of mine, you asked, did I love myself? Well, or do I like my body now? Well, all of a sudden I was given this really quick glimpse of how fragile life is in a way that had nothing to do with MS. So I, in that in itself, started shifting things for me. As I went on my journey, the more I allowed my truth to guide me, the more I honored my voice, the more I tried things outside of my comfort zone, the more I let go of the jobs that I didn't like anymore, the more I let go of the relationships that were the wrong relationships, the more I said yes when I wanted to say yes and no when I wanted to say no. All of these things that we do for ourselves to empower ourselves then create more confidence in ourselves, then create more love within ourselves. So my journey has been, it's not that one day I woke up like, oh, I know the answer is to love myself. I love myself. The more I gave myself permission to be me, the more I fell in love with myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Accepting every little curve, you know? Absolutely. Yes. And when it comes to my body, you know, unfortunately I was raised in the eighties so this was like slim fast and Weight Watcher scales and like yeah, I was thinking that when you're telling your story, I'm like, this you could have said my story, <laughs> right? Like, hello, it's not my mother's fault by any means, but my mom struggled with her weight. 
My mom struggled with her body image. And that's where I was initially exposed to all this and talk shows. Like, I know this sounds crazy, but I remember learning about eating disorders. I'm like, it, I don't remember. Oprah. It Sally, yeah. It was like <laughs> Sally, Jesse, Raphael or Oprah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Which one, but like, that's where I learned about it. Like how crazy is that to think about now? It is so crazy. And it's true though, because that's what was on when we got home from school. Yes. You know, the talk show and then there'd be the totally dysfunctional people. (laughs) You're like, wow, these people exist. (laughs) Right. And so, um, yeah. And I think because there was no internet out and this was like taboo topic, topics of conversation, especially in your youth and early twenties and whatnot, we didn't really have anyone to talk to about our struggles. Mm-hmm. And that's where it became so internal. And fortunately, you know, again, my journey kind of mirrors in a way like people, I started opening up about it more when it became a topic of conversation that people were starting to open up more. Or I just started learning more of my friends were having their struggles and I was being able to talk to my friends about it because these were just things we just didn't talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, talking about it is like releasing the floodgates, like freeing you of the chains is just talking about these things, you know, that when we have know been we're not alone out. in our story. It's game changing. Mm-hmm. So was there a, so first of all, I really don't like to go deep into symptoms and things like that. Cause that's mm-hmm. not the focus, mm-hmm. but just to give people the backstory, when you were diagnosed with MS, was it that you were experiencing some dehabilitating symptoms or what was oh, that? absolutely. It was like flip a switch. So I woke up and if you draw a line down my body, um, ha- my left side was either all tingly or numb. So like my torso was completely numb. And so it was like my left, si- my left side of my body went haywire and my right eye went blind and my right scalp was numb. So um, that's what led the uh, neurologist to decide that an MRI was needed because it was my right scalp and my left side of my body. But yeah, I couldn't, I could put a flame against my torso and couldn't feel it. And I did that with a lighter. So that's why I'm saying that. Like it was, oh my gosh. Yeah. But you know, I wasn't even scared back then because I'd never heard of MS. So I was Mm -hmm. just like, mom, I literally remember calling my mom on a cordless phone from my house, my sophomore year in college and being like, mom, have you ever slept so hard? Your whole side of your body falls asleep. Cause that's all I knew of was, was you fall, your leg falls asleep, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just it fell asleep and it wasn't waking up. Wow, I can't believe you weren't scared by that. <laughs> well, I just was like, this is weird. You know, I think ignorance is bliss. Like, I didn't know That's there true. was such a thing where this could happen, and it just, it was just like, mom, this is really weird. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, mom, I'm really scared. It was just, what is this? You know. Mm-hmm. So after your diet, you were diagnosed. Was there, a, when did that moment come or was there a moment that you remember deciding, like making that conscious decision to, to heal from MS, to leave MS behind you? Um, I never made a conscious decision to heal my MS. I made a conscious decision to start being happier. Mm-hmm. And the happier I got, the healthier I got. I actually never once said, I'm going to heal myself from MS. I was pretty fine just taking medication, thinking that was the answer. Only I realized over my journey. Cause you remember, remember it was 12 years after my initial diagnosis that I stopped taking my medication where I can say that I started to put myself first. So I was, I was diagnosed October, 1997 and 
January 1999. I was, uh, I was still in school and I decided to go study overseas for a semester in London. And that was huge for me to go to, to leave and like step out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And this was in response to not just the MS, but I was grieving really. The, my friends dying was way harder for me to accept than the MS. The MS was almost on the back table from the beginning because Imagine losing both your best friends at 19. That is way harder to accept than there's a chance my body, because what happened was I had my initial symptoms, but then they give you solumedrol or prednisone and the symptoms go away. So you're like, oh, well, maybe this won't happen again, but your friends don't come back to life. Right. So I was not only dealing with the MS, but I was grieving and I was, I had been in a relationship where a guy had broken up with me. So it was just a lot of stuff where as a teenager, I was struggling and I was like, oh, people are traveling overseas for this semester. And so I went to London for the semester and I ended up going, my birthday is March 15th, which is the Ides of March, but it's also the week of St. Patrick's Day. And it's usually the week of spring break, like every year of my life. So in the semester overseas, I gathered some friends and I, we decided to go to Ireland. And all of a sudden I was in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day, which seemed like a dream come true to any 20 year old, right? <laughs> yes, like sure. who's in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day? So here I was in Ireland, 20 years old in St. Patrick's Day. And it occurred to me that I never would have given myself permission or even thought about going overseas for a semester, let alone being in Ireland had I not been diagnosed with MS and my friends not died. Because I was so aware of my body and this idea of, I want to use my legs to carry me anywhere and everywhere as long as I can, because I'd just been given a glimpse of not having control of my body. Mm-hmm. As well as, oh my goodness, you never know when it's your last day. So I got a little tattoo when I was in Ireland of a four-leaf clover with the letter M, because both of my best friends' names started with the letter M. And I recognized how lucky and fortunate I was to have gone through everything I had just gone through in the last year because it had led me to that moment. Hmm. And that was the beginning of my awareness. So I was 21 years old. I turned 21 and then went to Ireland. And that really, once I stamped that on myself, it's where it began for the rest of my life to look at any situation as to, I know I'm in it right now and it's really hard and I don't want to be going through this. But I also have awareness that silver linings do exist. Mm-hmm. The silver linings do exist. And I love that what you said about having your mobility, the idea of your mobility taken away from you makes you want to just, you know, move, move, move now. You can't take your body for granted anymore. Once you realize, you know, I think at 19, we all think, at least I speak for myself, I thought I was invincible. The last thing you think of is, being told that you have a disease that affects your ability to run, to walk, to, to just function without thinking. Because we all function without thinking. We, it's not our fault that we take it for granted. It's just... It's a blessing. Lo- it's a blessing. Luckily, we don't have to think to breathe, but some people do. Right. Luckily, we don't have to think to walk, but some people do. So once you're given that awareness, you can't unknow. I agree. I agree. I, I was losing sensation in my legs and feet, and I couldn't be as active as I wanted to be. And now I, I'm seriously honest when I say I just like to move because I can, I'll just move. I'm like every second I can be out there. I'm out there moving. 
Girl, you are preaching to the choir. I get it. Yeah. So um, it's amazing. And we're so blessed. We're so blessed to sit here and be able to talk about that right well, and now. That's, my healing story really becomes one of movement mm-hmm. um, because movement became a way of loving myself. And that is because it's really fascinating for me to have this awareness of once upon a time I used to exercise but I also kind of was exercising as punishment to myself because Mm -hmm. exercising was burning calories. Yes. Mm -hmm. Exercising wasn't passion and exercising wasn't, you know, it it wasn't light. It was kind of heavy, right? Mm -hmm. However, at the age of 32, another way I'd been kind of like toxic to myself was I smoked cigarettes. So I started smoking in high school as a way to fit in. Um, everyone was doing it, only I had an addictive personality. So smoking became another th- another vice for me along with the food. It just became another thing to add. So I quit smoking cold turkey after 15 years at the age of, I was like 31. What inspired that? That's a funny story um, <laughs> because I was sitting on my front porch. I re- First of all, I was living in San Diego. And I don't know if you remember, like it was like 2000. 2000- eight, 2009 laws started getting passed. So like in New York, you couldn't smoke a cigarette within 15 feet of a bar, you know, like you had to start being like removed. Well, that was Southern California, super healthy. So all of a sudden I was falling into this category where, uh, being like discriminated against because I'm smoking. And I started to notice, well, none of my friends are smoking. Like I'm actually smoking by myself most of the time, you know? So I was sitting on my front porch and I lived in this old Victorian house and there was a big stoop and there was people that lived around me that could come out from their little patios. And I was out there by myself and I noticed I had one cigarette left in my pack. And um, I don't know if you are a fan of Chris Rock or not, but I'm a big Chris Rock fan. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I don't, Chris Rock has a bit where he's like, and it's so relevant and now in today's world when I think about it, but it's not a gun problem. It's a bullet problem. Mm-hmm. And that if we made bullets hard to get access to, Guns couldn't actually hurt people. So what if we made bullets really, really expensive? Well, I'm sitting there staring at my pack of cigarettes and I was like, Carlin, you don't need to quit smoking. You need to quit buying cigarettes. And all of a sudden, just that little shift of I'm allowed to smoke, but I'm only allowed to smoke if I bum from somebody because I'm not allowed to buy any more cigarettes. Mm. That became, that is how I quit smoking. Because no one likes the girl that bums cigarettes and none of my friends were smoking. So I was going to have to go bum and I'd have to like leave where I was to go find one because no one smoked indoors anymore and no one smoked around where I was. So that's how I quit smoking was I gave myself permission to smoke, but only if someone offered me a cigarette. Well, there you go. If you're smoking out there, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And to this day, I'm proud to say I mean, I've had the occasional cigarette every now and then reminiscing with a college friend. I mean, I'm not addicted to cigarettes. I, I gave up smoking, but I have had friends since then once, once or twice say to me, Hey, will you pick up a pack of cigarettes for me? And I was like, no, I quit buying cigarettes. I can't buy them. Can't buy them. So when I quit buying cigarettes, I also recognized I wanted to fill that time and energy with something healthy. And a friend challenged me to sign up for my first half marathon. And I was like, you're crazy. I can't run a half marathon. Who am I to run a half marathon? I think at the most, at that time, I'd only run five miles. But it was a training group and it was raising money for the Crohn's Colitis Foundation. There was all this positive stuff around it. And so I was like, you know what? 
I quit smoking. I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for this half marathon. And then before I knew it, I became the girl with MS running a half marathon. Isn't that interesting that you, it sounds like you kept living your life without really wearing it. Yeah. Or, and not even focusing on the MS so much. Mm -hmm. It was on the back burner. I was very involved with the, I've always been very involved with the MS society and always been very proud to be a face for MS because I do not look like the average MS person. Mm -hmm. And so the very first time I, it was 2002 and I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And I was working for a radio station that was a sponsor for the local MS 150 bike ride. And at the time I had never met anybody from an MS society. This was like a few years after my diagnosis and the MS society came to my company and to do a lunch and learn about the MS 150. And that's when I had the opportunity to approach them and go, excuse me, I've actually never been involved and didn't know how I could get involved, but I have MS. Is there what, what, what next? And they put me in touch with a friends and family team. And that was my first time ever. I mean, I was still a smoker. I still had food issues, you know, but I signed up for the MS 150 bike ride. So from the very beginning, I was very open to fundraising and sharing my story. And the MS society, when I agreed to, when I signed up for the ride, they reached out to me and, and asked me if I would go on the local channel for news to share about the bike ride because they thought that I wasn't somebody that people typically identified with MS. So from my, from day one, I have been sharing my story to encourage others to share their story and to show that MS can look like anyone. Truly. And that we can all move. Like I still had a bit, I could still raise money. I mean, so from the very, I've raised thousands and thousands of dollars for MS over the years. An interesting story that I, I would love if you could share with um, with my listeners is you talk about intuitive superpower, and can you sort of tell us about that? And then can you tell us about how that came to play with you getting off of your the the MS prescription meds? Absolutely. So um, I'm an intuitive, and the intuition shows up in. Well, you can't turn off your intuition. I mean, you can, but once you once you know it's there. Why would you want to? <laughs> right. So intuition comes from your heart. Um, our mind actually can get in the way with, with reason, right? But if you are being true to yourself, oftentimes many people confuse intuition with anxiety. They think that if they're feeling anxious about something, it needs to be avoided when oftentimes the anxiety is showing up for them to be called to do the thing that they might not want to do because it's scary. And the reason it's scary is because it's your truth. And because it's our truth, sometimes it doesn't make other people happy, right? Mm-hmm. So at a young age, um, I started recognizing there were things I wanted to do, but I wasn't getting from permission from other people to do them. So in order for me to do them, I had to follow my heart. And I recognized that every single solitary time I followed my heart, it worked out better than I could have imagined. And all the other people that were doubting me would then have to come forward and say, wow, I can't believe you did it. Good for you. And not only did you do it, but it came out like this. So like my, one of my first examples is I was living in Dallas, Texas. After I graduated college for three years, I'd moved out there for an internship. And but this is before any form of social media. So you didn't know anybody anybody else's stories to be inspired by. All you had was your own knowing. Mm-hmm. And 
I recognized I wasn't happy in Dallas being in a landlocked state um, or a landlocked city. And I, my job at the time had allowed me to go out to San Diego every now and then for work. And I flew into San Diego like, wait a minute, what am I doing living in Dallas? Is that a cruise ship I see there? Is that the ocean I see there? Like, I need to live here. But I didn't have a job. I didn't have a plan. I just had a knowing. And without going into the whole story, you know, I moved to San Diego without a job. I ended up being offered a friend of a friend had needed a roommate and I'd never been to there before. I didn't know anything. And, you know, thus became this, I'm going to follow my heart and do this. And again, it worked out better than I could have imagined. I ended up staying in San Diego for eight years. My brother moved out there. He still lives there. Like say, my whole life changed when I moved to San Diego, but nobody was encouraging me to go, not a soul. Mm. So I had to do that for myself, which plays into how I became med-free because there's a medication called Tysabri. If there's anyone out there that has MS or knows someone with MS, Tysabri um, is a monthly infusion that you get. So just like any medication out there, there's no such thing as a long-term study when you're one of the first people to go on it. And that's why may cause side effects. We don't actually know who's going to get the side effects. And we don't often even know about the side effects until somebody unfortunately dies or has a bad side effect, right? Hmm. So Tysabri was a controversial drug in the beginning because some people did experience side effects. So in 2005, it was quickly put on the market and then quickly pulled off the market. And then in 2007, it was reintroduced to the market. And at the time, I was pretty stubborn with my MS um, medication because the shots that I had been on made me get sick just from the medication. It didn't make me have MS symptoms. I just had like flu-like symptoms from the shot. And so to put my parents at ease and to be not like irresponsible, I was like, oh, this drug, I can get a monthly infusion of monthly or monthly infusion and I'm doing it. Like I'm being responsible, right? But I had to sign my life away before going on this drug because I was one of the first 10,000 people in the States to go on it. So mm. I made my best friend come with me to my first infusion. Like you're my, you know, you're my emergency contact. Can you just come with me? So everything was fine. For the first two and a half years, I had no side effects and I used my infusions to serve me the same way at this point I'd been using everything to serve me. I'd schedule them. You know, I got to leave work a little early. I'd schedule them around 4 p.m. so I could sit in the chair with an IV in my arm and watch Oprah. And then very <laughs> often, I know, I'm like, I'm going to make this me time. And then very often, uh, because the clinic wasn't that far from the beach in San Diego, I'd actually go to my infusion in my running clothes, in my workout clothes, and leave the office with the Band-Aid on my arm from where the IV was and go for a run or a walk. That is how committed I was to myself to use this time to heal. Until That's some sweet. people, right? It's, it was like I made it, I just, nothing has meaning unless you give it meaning. And if you can give it positive meaning, go for it, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden people started being diagnosed with this incurable brain disease called PML. And it was a small sample of people, but there were people being diagnosed. And the only correlation that they had at the time was these individuals being on Tysabri for two and a half years or longer. Yikes. Well, I was, I was at two and a half years. So now the doctor said, well, we don't know why, but we need to monitor you more. So rather than one MRI a year, it's two MRIs. And I don't know if you know how expensive an MRI is, but- I had to get a brain and a spinal MRI and they're like $2,500. So 
So I'm like, wait a minute, are we treating a drug or are we treating a medication? Because I don't want to be getting more scans and have more doctor's appointments because of the medication I'm on. I want to be doing this if it's MS related. And so I really started to question just being on the medication. And at the same time, I started doing, this was when, I don't know, things were starting to be shared more because we had the internet, you know, and this idea of modalities and healing and herbs and energy and all these things that had never even been out there when I first started my journey, I started to have access to. One of my, I was a nurse recruiter at the time, and one of my nurses happened to live in Southern California and her husband happened to be an herbalist. Now, all this was like woo-woo to me at the time, right? (laughs) But I decided to go down the rabbit hole and just learn more about it. And the more I learned, the more I started learning, I might be able to help myself in ways that no doctor is actually telling me about. And I don't want to pay the extra money. And I started getting this anxiety of, I don't want to come in for two doctor's appointments versus one doctor's appointment. I don't want the MRIs. And I started looking at the IV, the medicine going in on the IV. I remember my last appointment before I made the decision, I started believing I was poisoning myself. Oh, well, that's not a good thing. No, and now I had read enough information that if you believe you're poisoning yourself, there's a good chance you are. Absolutely. And so I called the doctor and I canceled. I said, am I putting myself at risk for going off the meds? And he said, no, it stays in your system for for three months. And I said, okay, well, and I canceled. And then I was also starting onto a new insurance because I'd switched companies. I'd been laid off and I was on Cobra and I was starting a new business, starting a new company. And this new company was a smaller company and their insurance my first infusion was going to cost $3,000 based on my coverage. Oh my goodness. And that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me. And so I decided I'm going to go off my meds. And if I begin to feel irresponsible, if I feel like my disease is showing symptoms again, I'm not here to be irresponsible. I'll go back on meds. I never went back. It's like the whole universe was sort of giving you the signs, you know? Right. And like, The scary part about any of, when it comes to our intuition, it actually comes down to us making the decision. When we ask for answers outside of ourselves, we're going to get 50% saying this and 50% saying that. And that's when we start going crazy. And that's where the anxiety comes in. Because oftentimes we actually know what we want to do. We just are scared to do it because we don't, it's scary to trust ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've asked quite a few people on the show, and I'm glad you brought it up, actually. Um, how do you tell people to tell the difference between anxiety and intuition? Are you, and are you saying that they're actually correlated there? Yes, I think they are. I think that our emotions are our, it's our compass, right? I would say, first, we look at the decision. So the intuition is usually telling us to go one way or another or to do something or to not do something, right? So let's say it's leave your job, right? And you have anxiety. You're waking up in the middle of the night in anxiety. Well, right now you're just at the point of, you don't know where the anxiety is coming from, right? You're just like, why do I have so much anxiety? And then if we were working together, I would say to you, okay, well, let's talk about what's going on in your, on in your life and where you're happy versus where you're unhappy. And sometimes it's relationships, sometimes it's health, sometimes it, there, it can be a slew of things, but let's say it is your job. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say, well, do you want to, do you want to get another job? 
And then you start giving me all the excuses as to why you can't, but you've already told me you're not happy in it. So all I'm hearing is, okay, I'm hearing all the excuses why you don't want to leave. Tell me why you want to stay. And then when you tell me all the reasons you want to stay, it really only comes down to the fear of leaving. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fear and excitement are the same emotion, believe it or not. So we can be fueled by fear. We can be fueled by excitement. It just comes from a different place within us, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all anxiety is good. I just know that when I, get, when I have anxiety now, it usually goes away when I make a decision. And when that decision is in alignment with me versus to please or compromise for another. Does that make sense? Complete sense. Complete sense. So when it comes to MS, for most of my childhood and my 20s, I was a pleaser. I was not speaking up for what I needed. I wasn't giving myself what I needed. But no one knew it either because I was really good at being a chameleon whether it be my job, whether it be my relationship, just being happy. I was good at being happy on the outside with, even if I wasn't happy on the inside, Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I really addressed what was making me unhappy on the inside that my MS disease started shifting. And that's the hard work. Same with the eating disorder, because you know, that eating disorder, most eating disorders come from people wanting to please and not be um, Exposed. exposed as who they are lack of voice. It's so wild when you see how it's all connected. And it's so wild to see who I am today. And when people go, how did you heal yourself from MS? I go, because I'm not that 19 year old anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I challenge anyone out there like, yeah, we're given a diagnosis. It doesn't mean it's a life sentence. It means this happened. Now what? You can be allergic to peanuts and you're not like walking around with peanut allergies all the time. You're not going to introduce yourself to, hi, my name's Carla and I have peanut allergies because unless you were having an allergic reaction, then I would identify with it. I'd be like, oh, I'm having an allergic peanut reaction. I probably shouldn't eat peanuts, right? Mm -hmm. But like, why would I walk up and say I have MS if I'm not having an MS symptom? I completely agree. And when, you know, when I was really sick and I was telling you this and I haven't told my listeners yet this, but when I was really sick, all my doctors kept saying, you know, it's likely you have MS. It's likely you have MS. You have to get an MRI. And I just kept on refusing the MRI because I had all these friends around me or not all, but a few friends around me that once they had gotten a diagnosis of whatever it was, they really, I just, it was like, I watched them decline so quickly. It was like it was cementing it in stone. And so I just didn't want a diagnosis. And maybe that was irresponsible. And I certainly don't suggest people to do that. But I do want to say, you know, like today I'm perfectly healthy and happy. So let's go back on that irresponsibility. Was it your intuition? Yes, I was just going to say. So intuitively, I knew that's not what I need. That's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. To me, it was like, okay, uh, what if I get an MS diagnosis? Then there, what are the doctors going to do? And is that really going to help me? And intuitively, I knew, um, I knew it was something that I could find within myself. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is when you do get a diagnosis of whatever that is, when your life is changed and it's out of your control, like when you're handed something, 
you immediately have to go into reactive mode. How are you not? We're not proactive. We're re- like, you just took a proactive approach, but most of us are given something and we have to respond to it. We have to react. Well, when you're given something life altering, of course you go into fear. How do you not? Mm-hmm. Your life has just been changed and it wasn't on your terms, right? The problem is the doctors show up with a solution when you're in a fear-based state. You don't have the win. You don't have the wherewithal. You're just like, okay, tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, even like a gap year, like you graduate high school and we're conditioned to go straight into college. How many of us would have liked to take a year off to figure out who we were and what we actually wanted to do before this pressure of, oh my gosh, I just graduated. I got to go to college. Like how many of us actually, I mean, knew what we wanted to do yet? Mm-hmm. Well, who even knows what they want to do when they graduate? <laughs> right, exactly. So it's kind of like you, you should be given, you should be told, like when you get a disease, you should really be told there are options. And, the, and a lot of doctors do do this, but there's options Eastern and Western. Yes. There's options for you. I want you to walk away and digest this and make sure you dial into positive people like One of the reasons I make myself available as a connector and a coach to people in whatever space they're in is they need to know hope right away. Mm -hmm. They need to know, I'm not saying what I did is what you need to do, but you need to know what they need to know it's an option. Because if you're not handed that and you're just like given, this could be your future and your legs might not work, which is how it was presented to me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's scary. So scary. And that's exactly what it was for me is that I knew that I was better off not being handed that because of my emotional response at the time. Mm -hmm. And good for you to have that awareness because again, it's a different age now than it was 21 years ago when I was diagnosed. Now we know that we can create that time for yourself. So I, I applaud you for doing that. Well, thank you. You're about the only person, really. I think my mom might have, but I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's like you have to be prepared. And I respect that. And that's caring. You know, that's people's caring. You know, I feel like well, we've talked about this how we both had a, some intuition that this was a journey, but it wasn't our life's journey. Like mm-hmm. illness was going to be a part of the journey, but it wasn't the end all, be all of our journey. It was just, it was a learning path. And then mm-hmm. we get back on our path. And it's hard for some other people to hear this because of their own journey. But for me, MS is the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Because at such a young age, I was given, I've never been an adult without an awareness of my body. I've never, you know, I learned at a young, like again, I'm very fortunate that this happened when at a time in my life when my responsibility was myself. I wasn't, I mean, I'm still not married and I don't have kids. But at the time, you just have a lot less responsibilities when you're in college, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have the time to kind of be on this journey. It's a little harder when you just have so many other pieces in the puzzle, but MS became my fuel. And that is my mantra from the very beginning became, I'm going to plant my feet all over this planet as long as I possibly can. Oh, I love that. I love that mantra. And fast forward in 2015, what I was diagnosed 97. I can't even do the math, but 2015, I ran both the Boston and the New York marathon for the MS society. Oh my goodness. Like I never would have done that. Shoot running a marathon, unless you're chasing me. Right. I don't think I ever (laughs) would have been inspired to really become the runner that I did. I mean, yeah, this quitting smoking helped inspired it, but man, once I learned I, I could do it, I wanted to do it again because I liked being the girl with MS running. I liked showing people 
that MS wasn't stopping me. I was doing it for me though. Mm -hmm. It just happened to inspire others. And that was a gift that I could give because I wasn't doing it for them, you know? And that goes back to what you say is you say that you trust nothing happens to you, but rather for you. Absolutely. And I love that because you're sort of, you're living that with all, everything that you've gone through. I like to use football as a metaphor. Whenever a player makes a touchdown, very often you see them like look up at the sky and blow a kiss and thank God. Right? Mm-hmm. However, when they get a fumble, you don't ever see anyone thanking God. <laughs> That's true. They don't. But guess what? That fumble, that play led to the next play. It's all connected. So how can we curse what we decide is good and not honor at all the role that, the, that what happened to us that we weren't in control of actually opened us up to? I think that's the hard part is we don't want bad things to happen to ourselves or our loved ones or children or anything. I mean, look at the fires in Malibu right now. You know, look at our country right now. Like there's so much bad that we could focus on, but somehow this is opening us up to something else. We just don't know what it is yet because we're in it. So true. So true. And we're actually going to have some people on to talk about the opportunities that the planet's giving us with all these disasters, but that's in the future, but it's true. I completely agree and hear what you're saying. So it's like, look at your, like, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not, I didn't wake up and go, yay, MS. I mean, it was a journey, 12 years, like, think about it. Like got diagnosed. It wasn't till 12 years later that I gave myself permission to go off my meds for me and sign up for my first half marathon. So it wasn't overnight. So I don't ever expect anyone. It's just like grieving. It's a journey. It's not like you just, okay, I'm better now, you know, but it is giving yourself permission to have that journey. It's such an amazing process. You know, as you peel, I got so annoyed when I would go to practitioners when I was sick. They're like, it's like peeling the onion. So you're going to clear this layer and then something else might come up. But that's honestly what it is. What it ended up being for me is I had so many layers I had to like look at and see what, wow, this is a part of where I am today. Right. So let's look at it and see like, what is this, what is a better approach or how can we rewire my brain to think differently or whatever it is. So that's really interesting. And so when did you start Strangers to Friends? Oh boy. Strangers to Friends began, so I guess, should I share with your listeners that it's strangerstofriends.com. It's my website yes. and it's a community. And what began as a personal blog in 2010 that started from a, so when, you, when you're in a job, you have a business card. Even oftentimes you have a business card you never use, which was, was my case. And I was a nurse recruiter at the time. So when I lost my job, I lost my nurse recruiting card, but I wasn't using it anyways. So I took it upon myself to create a Carlin card, which is just said Carlin Shaw turning strangers into friends. That way, when I was out there connecting with people, I had a way to lead with me. And this, it's like the universe looked down and said, oh, she's ready to play. Let's start sending all these people across the path that. that she's supposed to meet. Yeah. Well, and this plays into MS because when I invented this card for myself, I didn't have a website. So at the bottom of the card, I had this super long URL that lit for my fundraising page on the MS Society. So it was like www.mssociety.org slash Carlin or something. 
So what started happening is as I would hand these cards out, people started asking me, oh, what's this link for? And I'd be very happy to share my story. Oh, I was diagnosed. I'm fundraising for a walk or a ride or whatever I was doing. And that's when I was giving permission to that person to go, oh, my mom was just diagnosed or my brother was just diagnosed or I was just diagnosed. And without knowing it, I was creating these opportunities that when I shared mine, it gave you permission to share yours. And that's where I recognize it's our stories that connect us all. And it wasn't just in the space of this. It also was in, it wasn't just in the support space. It was also in the social space. It was also in that playful space of, you know, I don't know why we're supposed to meet, but I know we're all connected. So here's my contact information because you're about to hand me your business information. And oh, let me see what you do. Oh, you're a software engineer. I don't think I'm going to need a software engineer anytime soon. Why don't you message me at my Hotmail address? That feels lighter, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's where the journey and self-awareness of this power of my ability to turning strangers into friends came. Um, and fast forward years later, now in Denver, I mean, I, I lived in Cal- San Diego with Strangers to Friends cards. I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina in 2011 for a year and a half, having never been there before, not knowing a soul. And I called it my Strangers to Friends journey because I literally showed up with 500 cards and rebuilt my life in a community for myself, being guided and being open to the right people. And that's when I started like the Facebook page of sharing more stories and taking pictures with people and stuff like that. And so when I came out to Denver, um, I went through a phase of losing myself. Um, I don't know if you can relate having been in a relationship at all before where you just kind of lose yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, that happened to me from 2000, like mid, like I got here and quickly got into a relationship with a great guy um, who just wasn't great for me, but it was really hard for me to walk away because I saw how much I was adding to his life and he needed me. Therefore, who was I to walk away? So oh, walk away. Yep. Old patterns. Yep. Old patterns. <laughs> well, it's the same pattern of the putting myself first. It's, it's all connected. When I look at all the stuff in my life I had to heal from, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, I didn't have any strangers to friends cards because I didn't even have self-confidence at the time. Long story short, and there is a blog on strangers to friends right now called Top Five Lessons Learned from losing my two front teeth, if any of your readers want to read it. But yes, and readers, go read it because it's an amazing story. <laughs> Essentially, so, I was thrown off my bike read it. because I ignored my intuition. I knew not to get on my bike, um, and that's a whole story in itself. But I ignored my intuition, and I got on my bike, and within you know, not that long after, I was thrown off, and I landed on nothing but my face, and I lost my two front teeth on impact. And when I decided to write a blog about it and I I lived very out loud with it, you know, I decided not to hide my smile and um, I caught it rocking out with my teeth out because so much of my life was broken that I couldn't allow my smile to be taken from me because everything else felt just lost. Hmm. And um, it really was a life. It was, it changed my life, this losing of my teeth. And it's, it's, it's was a, a blessing now? Now you see it as a blessing? Absolutely. absolutely. So Where Strangers to Friends Got Reborn was when I wrote this blog, I quoted Brene Brown in it because I was reading her book, The Gift of Imperfections. And I, and I tweeted my blog to her and she retweeted it to her fans. And that I could have just died right there. If you're, if you don't know who Brene Brown is, like she's one of my heroes, right? She writes about all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And a woman in Denver found my story and reached out to me because it turns out 18 years prior, she had lost her teeth and had never shared it with anyone and lived in shame. And I was reminded again, oh, if I share mine, I give you permission to share yours. 
And I decided to, well, maybe I can invite strangers into a space to, uh, to play with this because we were, I recognized we were experiencing a loneliness epidemic and strangers to friends wasn't founded on loneliness, but loneliness comes from not feeling connected and oftentimes being not knowing how to connect and not feeling safe to connect. So fast forward, I have a meetup right now, the platform's meetup, but it's moving into a membership based platform. And I have 4,000 people in my Denver meetup and a thousand people in my Boulder meetup. And I create experiences. I call it the stranger to friend experience. And I create opportunities um, in a world more connected, but more disconnected. Step away from your screen and come out and be seen knowing that our stories connect us all. And your story might be something as simple as I'm new to town and I want to meet more people. <laughs> yeah. You know? It doesn't have to be heavy. But when you meet other people that are new to town, oh my gosh, you just feel better. Or if you meet somebody newly divorced or you meet somebody who's switched from entre- you know, working in a company to entrepreneurship. And oftentimes it's, uh, these people then will connect with me. So I'm Carlin Shaw of strength with strangers to friends. So I make myself available as a connection coach. And this, as a connection coach, I work with people one-on-one because I know that the more connection you have with yourself, the more connection you then create outside of yourself because it doesn't start outside of yourself. That's my journey. And that's the journey that I want to hold space to for others, right? That's a really good point. It does being connected doesn't start with it um, no. outside of yourself. That's a really good point and a, a huge, wonderful reminder. Yeah. So I have a I, I mean, this comes down to in addition to that, as an intuitive, I the fun part is I get to intuitively connect people. So oftentimes it is people wanting outside connections, but until I know you and your story, I can't connect you with people. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, so when I work with people, it's a fun, um, I have a couple of different programs that, you know, some are more going inward than others. And some are more creating fun homework assignments for people to go outside and do the things, but then I help them with their confidence and stuff too. So it just depends on the person and their story, but my goodness, everyone comes out the other end, turning strangers into friends. Everyone. I love it. I love and it so much. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you're your own stranger to friend. Like how do you become your own stranger to friend to yourself? Mm-hmm. How do you? Well, that's the journey that I take you on. <laughs> that's the journey I take you on because it's the journey I took myself on. And when we can have another, uh, adults don't get told enough how brave they are. Adults, adults think we have to do it on our own and we don't. Yeah, we really don't. There's people everywhere and everyone's looking for connection, but starting with that connection in, in our, inside ourselves. I love that so much. Um, and I actually want to have you back on to even talk more in depth about strangers to friends. Cause that's like a huge other tree that you've created. Yeah. And MS has so much to do with connections. Cause if you really want to break it down, all MS is, is your nerves and messages connecting. Oh my gosh. Right. I like that you just broke it down like that. It's messages. I've never it's thought body, about that. It's your body communicating with itself. Hmm but you've got to know how to communicate effectively with yourself. Actually, I've never said that out loud like that before. That sounds really I'm good. I'm glad we got it on video. I mean, right? on this yeah. podcast, because that is some good because it is. stuff. It's effectively communicating with yourself so that your body can effectively communicate with itself. And that can be nutrition. I mean, there's so many layers, right? Mm-hmm. Like my story is my story. Everyone has their own stories, but you, you've got to learn your body. I don't know your body. Only you, my dear, as much as you and I could talk right now, I will never know that little voice in your head. Right. Only you do. Yeah, totally. And how is that voice communicating with you and how are you connected with it? 
You just have to listen to that voice. I've had so many times in my life where it's funny, um, you know, I'll stop listening to the voice or I'll be shushing it. I'll be like, oh, okay, you know, I, I don't need to listen to it now. And then slam, I will get hit so hard with something. And then it brings me right back to like listening to to the whispers. The voice doesn't even need to yell anymore. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I gotcha. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got you right now. I won't go through that grocery line. <laughs> right. You know? It's small things like that even. Life becomes a lot easier when we trust ourselves. It's truth. Complete truth. Yeah. yeah. So tell us, every, I always have to ask everyone that comes on, what's something you do every day to be a better you? Oh gosh, what do I do every day? I'm not a very routine individual, actually. I try to eat an avocado every day. That counts. Do you? Oh my gosh, I'm upset. When you lose your, t- when you don't have front teeth for eight months, you oh, start, yeah. yeah. So I do, I, tr- I actually eat probably an avocado a day. Do you just eat it right out? Or do you just Yeah, I'll take an avocado and I cut it in half and I either put salt on it or like a little sriracha and I just eat it. Mm. I think avocados... If that I were to learn so I'm allergic to avocados, we would have some serious issues. I almost I, don't want to ever know. Um, yeah. Also for myself, I make sure to, because as an entrepreneur, like there are days that I might, I just make sure I create interaction with people. I make sure to every day value somebody. So if I go, if I'm just at a coffee shop and I'm buying a cup of coffee, like I take the time to create a conversation. Like I love the power of exchanging energy and some days it's harder than others just based on your schedule. So I always have awareness of where can I create a little energy exchange, even if it's just something small as the only person I talked to today physically versus the phone was the person at the coffee shop mm-hmm. because it's an energy exchange and I'm creating ripples. So every day I have an awareness of where I can create a ripple and that's for myself. That's karma. Karma isn't, I'm going to do good. Therefore I get good. Karma is the feeling good and the doing good. So when I make someone smile, I feel good. Oh my goodness. I love it so much. Everyone continue to exchange energy, energy exchange and create those ripples all day, every day. And I'm going to leave you with something that Carlin says is step away from the screen and step out to be seen. Everyone have a great day. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to have to have you back. This was so fun. I'm Teresa Gabrielle, and you've been listening to The Good with Teresa G. You can follow The Good with Teresa G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you haven't yet, go to the Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation. Thank you for listening.